It's now time for questions to the Minister for Justice. Uh, and can I advise members that question 13 has been withdrawn? I call Christopher Stelford. Question number one, sir. In the period 2018 to 2020, there were 153 convictions at courts for offences under animal welfare legislation. This total relates to 68 convictions in 2018, 50 convictions in 2019, and 35 convictions at courts in 2020. All animal welfare matters, including the creation of offences and penalties in legislation for abuse of animals and their enforcement, are the policy and legislative responsibility of the Department of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs under the Welfare of Animals Act, Northern Ireland 2011. You may, however, be interested to know that I recently met with Minister Poots to discuss proposals for the creation of a register of those banned from owning animals. Whilst any policy decision regarding the creation of a register of those convicted of animal cruelty is purely the responsibility for DERA, I have agreed that my officials will provide advice with respect to the management of criminal records in order to assist with this work. I call thank, thank you. And the Minister um, had the prescience to anticipate where I was going with this, and I congratulate her on that. Would she agree with me that it is essential that progress is made between the Department for Justice and the Department for Environment, Agriculture and Rural Affairs in terms of bringing in such a register, because it is essential that people who are cruel to animals are prevented from, whole, uh, from uh, owning them? It is indeed important that those who are um, found guilty of serious animal cruelty offences are prevented um, from owning animals. The difficulty, of course, with the register are issues around GDPR um, and access to criminal record information. And I believe that my department is in a good position to be able to advise the Department um, of Agriculture um, in terms of how they can access those records in a meaningful way, depending, of course, on their ultimate use, um, because that will determine the level of access to which they're entitled. I call Declan McAleer. Um, the Minister may be aware that last month the dear Minister indicated that he was considering the establishment uh, uh, an animal cruelty register, an island-wide register of people who were cruel or convicted of having cruelty to animals. Is, is the Minister any aware of this and has she any update on the progress of this? Thank you. Well, with respect to doing so on an island-wide basis, the member will obviously be, be aware um, of the complexities in terms of sharing um, criminal record information um, on a cross-jurisdictional basis. However, this is another area that the Department will be able to assist um, the Department for Agriculture uh, with respect to in terms of how that would be taken forward, how the register itself would be constructed and with whom it would be shared and for what purpose. Um, are decisions that would need to be taken by the Department for Agriculture and for the, by the Minister. However, we would be able to give assistance and guidance in terms of the parameters um, which would have to be met in terms of that sharing to ensure that it can be legally um, actioned. I call Rosemary Barton. Thank you very much, uh, Mr De Deputy Speaker. Uh, and Minister, this is ju just a follow-on from that question. I want uh, I'm wondering, has there been any uh, conversation between, between your, your ministry and the DERA minister and perhaps the minister in the Republic of Ireland in relation to justice and the cruelty to animals and the register? 
Well, I have met with the Deira Minister personally. I'm not aware whether the Deira Minister um, has had any discussions with his counterpart um, in the Republic. Um, but certainly from my perspective, if we arrive at a point where Deira wish to share that information on a cross-jurisdictional basis, we would obviously want to provide them with the legal guidance in respect of how that data could be shared and with whom. Moving on, I call Kelly Armstrong. Question number two. <clears throat> As I previously announced, I intend to strengthen the current law on abuse of positions of trust by extending its scope beyond those responsible for our young people within the statutory sector. This should be achieved through an amendment of the Justice Bill during the course of its passage in the Assembly later this year. While I am very conscious that there has been a particular focus on the risk posed in sport and religious sectors, I am mindful that predatory behaviour can occur in other environments where an adult has significant influence or power over a young person <clears throat> in their care. I am therefore committed to ensuring that any legislative change is as robust as possible and offers protections where they are needed. That said, it is imperative that the law can withstand scrutiny and challenge in the courts to ensure that there is also no wiggle room for offenders. Similarly, I do not want to criminalise people inappropriately. It is crucial that the legal definition that applies in law strikes a proportionate balance. We need to ensure that in protecting our young people, we also respect their rights to engage in a healthy sexual relationship where they wish to do so. Turning to the Justice Bill, the draft bill has been ready to go forward since early May. However, my attempts to include approval of the bill's introduction on the executive's agenda at every meeting since the 6th of May have been unsuccessful, and the executive has still to prove, approve its introduction. I am greatly concerned, Mr Speaker, that this inexplicable and continuing delay is making it increasingly problematic for the bill to be progressed through its necessary assembly stages to royal assent within the current mandate. I remain hopeful that good sense and responsible stewardship will, even at this very late stage, enable me to introduce the bill and secure its passage in the remainder of this mandate. However, we are rapidly approaching a point of no return. If the bill cannot be progressed within this current mandate, I will ensure that my department takes the necessary steps for inclusion of the abuse of trust provisions in a suitable legislative vehicle early in the next mandate. <coughs> I could have Kelly Armstrong for a supplementary. Thank you very much, Principal. Oh, sorry, I was going to call you Principal Deputy Speaker. Deputy Speaker, um, Minister, um, thank you very much for your commitment on this. Um, sexual abuse of young people in any format is, is abhorrent. Um, I'm very concerned by what you've just said about the Justice Bill being held up. Um, do you have any deadlines by which it does need to be presented? Otherwise, that's it killed off for this mandate. Well, Mr Sp uh, Deputy Speaker, that deadline has effectively already passed. In order um, to introduce the bill, we would have needed approval for that um, a number of weeks ago, and that would have given the Speaker's office the customary two weeks in order to review the legislation and ensure its competence to arrange with the Business Committee for the tabling of the introduction of the bill, to allow a two-week gap between that um, and the second reading, so that the Department could fully brief the Committee between the two stages, and then subsequently to allow the Committee um, to do a call for evidence, hopefully over the summer, to allow it to proceed. That can, of course, be truncated, um, Mr Deputy Speaker. With the goodwill of the Speaker, it may be possible to do 
the review of that legislation more quickly. With the goodwill of the committee, it may be possible um, to do the call for evidence prior to the second reading. That would be unusual, but not impossible. Um, but we are now essentially relying on people's goodwill rather than good procedure, and I think that is a shame. The drafting of the bill was complete at the end of March. I initially issued an executive paper to seek approval for introduction on the 27th of April. The bill content, which, as you know, includes important provisions to protect women and children from serious sexual offences, sexual exploitation, and a number of other important matters, was agreed with the Executive Committee in November 2020. I call Nicola Brogan. And I thank the Minister for her answer so far and to share her concerns around the delays to the Justice Bill um, by some parties within the Executive. The delays really are inexcusable and it, um, it raises concerns for children and young people that they are, are still at risk and will remain at risk of grooming and sexual abuse when there are no adequate protections. So can the Minister outline um, potential implications if legislation is not passed within this mandate, please? Well, the member will be aware that if the legislation isn't passed within this mandate, the current arrangements for protection still apply. So it is not that people will have no protection um, from such offences, but it does limit those protections to those working within the statutory sector, and therefore those working within the voluntary sector would not be covered. Um, there are a number of areas of the bill which I think are incredibly important in terms of public protection. All of the content of the bill, as presented for introduction, was subject to appropriate consultation. No new content has been added in advance of introduction. I've written to my executive colleagues on six separate occasions to stress the importance of this bill and sought to get the bill onto the executive agenda for a decision on each of the executive's meetings since the 6th of May. In the most recent letter, um, I have confirmed um, by way of at least three ministers requesting then an item be tabled, um, that we had at least three ministers. Indeed, we had all ministers, um, bar those in the DUP. I call Sinead Bradley. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, Minister, following on from your answers, and whilst I appreciate this is not a, a solution in itself, have you given any consideration to the development of a guidance document for those um, who are helping in out-of-school settings? and that they can engage in best practice for helping those children in their care? The preparation of guidance documents with respect to safeguarding would be a matter for the Department of Health, but the law with respect um, to abuse of trust provisions would fall to the Department of Justice. So obviously in the absence of any developments um, with the Justice Bill, we would then look for other departments um, to provide interim measures, but guidance is not law, and therefore those who breach the guidance would be subject only um, to a breach of guidance um, and not to having broken the law or be uh, accessible to any criminal penalties. And could we have Cara Hunter on our screens? Thank, thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Um, question three, please, Minister. I recognise the devastating consequences which can be caused when a person falls victim to any scam, including telephone scams, where nearly a third of all fraud is committed over the phone. Telephone scams were recently highlighted as the type of scam requiring the least amount of effort by fraudsters. A scam can have a devastating financial and emotional impact, especially so over this past year, when some are on a limited or fixed income and are also perhaps in a more vulnerable position. My department works to tackle the threat of scams through its membership of the ScamWise Northern Ireland Partnership, 
which is chaired by the PSNI. The partnership has over 45 partners who work collaboratively to raise awareness of a number of key types of scams, including telephone scams. Key partners include the Northern Ireland Policing Board, Trading Standards Northern Ireland, the Consumer Council, the Commissioner for Older People, representatives from the retail and banking sector, including Royal Mail and the Post Office, and a number of faith and youth groups. I'm pleased that Ofcom, the communications regulator, joined the ScamWise partnership at the start of this year and will assist the partnership in work more closely with mobile phone network operators and internet providers to help prevent scams. I call Kira Hunter for supplementary. Technology may have let us down. Um, perhaps we'll go on to another supplementary and we can come back to Kira uh, if we make contact again. I call Gemma Dolan. Um, and I thank the Minister for her answers. Um, Minister, it's really concerning the telephone fraudsters pose as police officers this year um, you know, on over more than 300 occasions. Um, have you engaged directly with the Commissioner for Older People to try and support the older population to increase awareness of and help prevent these sophisticated scams? Um, as I referred um, in my original answer, um, the PSNI and the Commission for Older People um, are two of the members of the ScamWise partnership. In order to help tackle and raise awareness of scams, a series of books has been developed by the partnership. The Little Book of Big Scams, The Little Book of, book of Cyber Scams and The Little Booklet of Phone Scams. They're free and downloadable and hard copy books to provide comprehensive guides on how scams operate, how people can fall victim to fraudsters and, most importantly, how people can protect themselves and spot scams. In relation to telephone scams, the little booklet of phone scams gives 11 pages of advice on how to both spot and stop a telephone scam, including fraudsters' tactics, which can include disguising their phone number to make it look like a genuine one. The partner has also developed a series of short video clips to give social media users key advice on top tips and on scams, including telephone scams. These clips have been rolled out across PSNI, ScamWise and NI Direct social media platforms, as well as shared with other ScamWise partners, including um, the, uh, on the um, Office of the Commissioner for Older People. Mr Deputy Speaker, I welcome the answers so far given by the Minister, and particularly the work that is happening internally in Northern Ireland. But quite a lot of these scams will involve uh, people purporting, both from a tele uh, telephone point of view and a written point of view, purporting to represent national UK-wide agencies such as HMRC or DVLA. Could the Minister perhaps outline what steps are being taken on a cross-jurisdictional basis to cooperate to try to combat uh, these scams? Well, the member is, of course, right, and I think HMRC-style scams um, are some of the most obvious, but banking scams as well, where people will text you and ask you to return details of your account, your passwords and so on, um, are increasingly common um, and actually increasingly elaborate. I spoke to someone recently who worked in IT, and as a test, their own department had sent out a, a fake scam to test them after training and a number of IT professionals fell foul um, of the scam, so it shows how sophisticated some of these scams can be. I think working through particularly um, the offices of um, 
the communications ombudsman um, is important because I think that that is a UK-wide um, body which will actually keep pace with both the scams that are operating locally but also those um, national and indeed international level scams because some of these text messages, whilst they look like they come from UK numbers, um, are often generated well outside the UK and its jurisdictions and therefore it is an important step forward um, that we are now in a position um, to <coughs> pardon me, to have um, the Ofcom representatives um, on our, um, our ScanWise partnership to be able to inform us how to deal particularly with that cyber threat. We've been unable to resume our link with Cara Hunter, so we will have to move on. I call Emma Sheeran. The EU settlement scheme is not the responsibility of the Department of Justice, but is a UK-wide scheme managed by the Home Office. The scheme applies to all, regardless of whether they are a victim of crime or not. However, separately, my department does provide contracted support for adult potential victims of modern slavery and human trafficking, in line with Section 18 of the Human Trafficking and Exploitation, Criminal Justice and Support for Victims Act, Northern Ireland 2015. As well as providing safe and secure accommodation, the support providers ensure the potential victims receive assistance in obtaining legal advice or representation and are signposted to information on matters that are relevant to the individual's circumstances. This would include advice on applications to the EU settlement scheme where appropriate. Decisions around leave to remain are not a devolved matter. I understand that the Home Office published updated guidance in December 2020 for its staff on circumstances in which it may be appropriate to grant discretionary leave to remain to confirm victims of modern slavery and human trafficking. This guidance clarifies that EEA nationals who are confirmed victims of modern slavery will automatically be considered for a grant of discretionary leave in the same way as EEA non-nationals. I am aware that a range of steps has also been undertaken to raise awareness of the EU settlement scheme through public and social media, such as campaigns by Citizens Advice. There are two organisations in Northern Ireland, Advice NI and the Stronger Together EU Settlement Scheme Support Project, which can provide free confidential advice and support, including immigration advice and practical help and support, including interpreting services, and that includes an EU Settlement Scheme helpline to provide support on completing applications. I remain committed to supporting victims and improving their experience of the criminal justice system. My department provides funding of 2.3 million for support services for victims and witnesses of crime. These services, which are delivered by Victim Support Northern Ireland and the NSPCC, ensure that victims and witnesses receive information, emotional support, advocacy, assistance with compensation and support at court. VSNI have, through social media, announced a call to action to the EU settlement scheme, providing a link to the Migrant Centre NI, who in conjunction with Advice NI can provide support to, to vulnerable EU citizens who need additional help when applying for their immigration status through the Home Office EU Settlement Scheme portal. Can I remind the Minister it's two minutes for an answer, but she can request an extra minute if she feels she, she needs it in particular. I call Emma Sheeran for supplementary. Thank you for your um, comprehensive answer. And obviously you've uh, refer to the fact there that the scheme deadline is the 30th of June and we know from engagement with groups that a vast number of people who require application to the scheme to secure their future here haven't yet applied. Um, can you advise if your department will be doing anything to support people who haven't been represented in that and if there is circumstances in which people will be able to make a late representation that you'll be representing them on their behalf? 
Well, as I said at the outset, it isn't the responsibility of the Department of Justice um, to, to do so. Um, but we do, where we have the opportunity um, to engage with victims of crime, provide them with the opportunity um, to be able to do so. And I have to say also, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, for those within the justice system, um, so for example, those within our prisons or those who are on probation, um, and we have made arrangements in order that those who wish to be resettled, um, including, for example, remand prisoners um, who at the minute have not been found guilty of any crime, but may find themselves in difficult circumstances and being able to apply for settled status so that they have access to the information and the ability to make applications. Further complication, of course, which has been noted is that many parents were unaware that they had to make separate applications for their children in addition to their own application. And so that is something that we are seeking to raise awareness of. But it is primarily an issue for other departments as opposed to um, the Department of Justice, though where we can help, we will. I call Colin McGrath. Deputy Speaker, and as the Minister is correct that it's not her department's responsibility for this. It is, in fact, everybody's responsibility because what we're actually doing here is trying to make people that live here and have called it their home sometimes up to 40 and 50 years to make sure that they avail of all the proper services. You've mentioned that your department did do some work um, in trying to signpost people. Could you detail further just what that work was and how successful it was? Well, having been scolded um, by the Speaker already in terms of the length and breadth of my original answer, I'm not going to risk his wrath by repeating it all, but there was quite a lot of detail in the answer I would ask you to reflect on um, after this, and to say that we have also done considerable work um, in terms of working, for example, with prisoners who will often not have access to documentation, not be able to hang on a phone line for sometimes up to three days um, it can take to get through to an advisor, um, and also um, may not have access to English and therefore need a translator also available to them. These are obstacles that are being placed in the way of people who would otherwise be able to remain. And so I think it is important um, to note that we have also asked that the scheme be extended um, to give people good time in which to make their applications. I call Kelly Armstrong. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker, and thank you very much, Minister. As we all know, there's only nine days left of the EUSS scheme for people to apply. Um, you've already mentioned that you have made uh, or you've provided support for those in prison or probation making application under the EUSS. Um, could I just ask you, of that type of support, you've mentioned translators and so on, have you been able to use any of our local advice services on that? And is there anyone else left within your system that you have control over that that can apply has now applied? Well, we have continued to raise this um, with a number of organisations, and indeed a number of organisations like Niacro and others <clears throat> have raised it with us because of their concern. I mean, you'll appreciate that this is all done by smartphone. Prisoners haven't got access to smartphones. Um, they aren't in a position often to have the documentation that would be required or access to be able to receive it. We had permission from the Home Office. We sought and gained permission um, quite a number of months ago to access paper schemes so that people would be able to apply on paper. Then the paper documentation never was actually released, despite the fact that it agreed to do so. Um, I think it may now have been released, but it certainly wasn't available um, the last time I sought an update. Um, and there is also the issue of being able to get advice from a caller that you would be able to ring a number and know that you could speak to someone who could help. Because it is frustrating enough, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, if you're phoning up from home um, trying to get through to an advice service. It is more frustrating when your telephone time is limited um, and you're not in a position to make repeated calls 
or you have an interpreter sitting there ready to answer questions and assist you who won't be there the next time you call um, for you to be left hanging without the ability to make an application. These are very complex issues. There are a number of organisations that are funded specifically to offer that advice, and so we direct people towards them in order to get assistance. Moving on, I call Sinead McLaughlin. Thank you. Um, question four, Minister. Or question five, sorry. While my department has overall responsibility for the implementation of the Gillen Review, the recommendations represent a transformational programme of significant reform that requires collaboration and coordination across ministerial departments, multiple sectors and partner organisations, and cannot be delivered by the Department of Justice alone. The provision of standardised effective RSE is an example of this, as it can only be delivered by the Education Minister and her department. You may therefore wish to seek an update from my ministerial colleague on the work her department is doing in that regard. It may be helpful to add, though, that I fully support Sir John Gillan's recommendations and believe that consistent and uniform RSE is crucial to giving children and young people the information and tools they need to understand healthy relationships, make informed decisions and protect themselves. Effective RSE will also contribute to reducing the risk of them becoming offenders. It is for that reason I met with the former Education Minister, who I'm pleased to see is now on the back benches, but also, more importantly, on my committee. Um, and he uh, and I had discussions um, around how to take uh, the planned work forward in terms of improving the provision of RSE on our schools. Minister Weir gave a commitment that his department would lead cross-sectoral work to look at improving the provision of RSE, including a review of the minimum content order. I'm pleased the working group has now been established, and my department has arranged workshops to enable officials from the Department of Education to engage with the views of stakeholders, including Nexus, Women's Aid, NSPCC, Queen's University, Carafriend, Common Youth, CCEA and the Health Trusts. The Department of Education will be considering these discussions and they will advise on next steps. I understand that any changes to the minimum content order will require legislation, which will not be progressed in this mandate. However, I believe there is other work that can be taken forward in the interim. I will continue to press for positive change and hope to discuss progress with the new Minister for Education in due course. Call Sinead McLaughlin for supplementary. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, thank you, Minister, uh, for your answer there. And this is an example of where departments must work together uh, for the appropriate outcomes. And I think um, all um, ministers want our young people to have and receive uh, comprehensive uh, training uh, and education around relationships and sex education. In, in relation to your discussions with the, the, the previous minister, have you confirmed a timeline um, when you believe that this could be run out into all of our schools? Um, as I indicated, um, the issue would require, in terms of the minimum content order, which was the most recent discussions um, that we had, would require um, legislation, and it is unlikely that that would be able to be brought forward in this mandate, given the short time available um, and the need to consult uh, with education stakeholders specifically on any proposed changes. However, as I said, there are other things that can be done short of the minimum content order being changed that would allow, um, for example, improved um, CCEA um, review of, um, of RSE education, which I believe is already underway if not complete. I'm looking to the former minister for some assent, but he's given me nothing. Um, so I'm going to assume um, that I'm not misspeaking, but I understand that there was a review underway. Um, and so it would be, I would be hopeful that in the interim, certainly those schools who wish um, to advance 
um, RSE education uh, would be able to do so. But it is important because these are life skills. Um, it is important for young people um, to be able to protect themselves, um, both from offending but also um, from being victims of sexual crime. I call Linda Dillon. And thank the Minister for her answer so far and to Sinead McLaughlin for bringing this question because it is vitally important and whilst I understand that it, it is cross-cutting, exactly what Sinead said is right. This is a perfect example of where we need departments to work together. Could the Minister give us an update in relation to Operation Encompass because obviously sexual education is extremely important and I want to see it right across all schools, not just those that choose. But we also need to be sure that our children are protected when they're within school. I could give the member an update on Operation Compass, but I would have to do it via writing because I don't have um, an update to hand. However, I know that work in the department is well underway in terms of identifying where information should be shared, how that information can um, be shared legally and appropriately to ensure that if a young person has been subjected to an adverse incident, um, which is reported to the police, um, that when they arrive at school, the school will at least be aware um, that they have ex had that experience since their last time in school and will be able to respond appropriately and offer the right support. I call Rachel Woods. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I thank the Minister for her answer so far. And can I ask the Minister if she's got any commitment from the new Minister of Education that this work will continue um, within her department on changes to the minimum content order, given comprehensive RSE's incredible importance, and if she would support the pooling of budgets to enable this work to be done and facilitated as per the conditions in the Children's Services Cooperation Act? With respect to the second part of the question, resources are being pooled. As I said, my own um, department has organised um, the workshops which have taken place this month, led by the Department of Education, um, to enable attendees to put forward um, suggested changes to the minimum content order in respect of RSE. Um, obviously, DE will then collate that feedback from workshops and will be reporting back um, to the RSE subgroup um, of the Main Gillen Education and Awareness Group. Um, and I think it's important to note that we do work together on these issues. With respect to the new minister um, and any personal commitment that she may have in this regard, um, it isn't something that I have had the opportunity yet to explore with her. Um, but I would be hopeful um, that, given the direction of travel set by her colleague, that she would continue with this um, very important work. That is the end of our period of time for listed questions. Um, we now move on to topical questions. And can I advise members that question number seven has been withdrawn. I call Patsy McGlone. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Um, will the Minister condemn with me the despicable comments from the unrepresentative Loyalist Communities Council that Irish ministers and officials weren't welcome in Northern Ireland? I will absolutely condemn such remarks. I believe that they create um, a chilling um, and unhelpful atmosphere. I think that th such threats, however thinly veiled, have no place um, in Northern Ireland and never have had. I think it is important that we recognise that Irish government ministers have an important role to play in terms of us being able to cooperate and work together on an all-island basis to deliver better for people across this island and indeed throughout these islands because they are also members of the British-Irish um, Council and that is an important part of the work that we do as executive ministers. It is frankly to me remarkable that an unelected group would dare to suggest that elected representatives either from this jurisdiction or any other are unwelcome here. The only thing that is unwelcome in Northern Ireland is continued paramilitary influence in our communities.
thanks very much, Minister, for, for your comments in that regard. Um, uh, will the Minister agree with me that there have been a number of assessments by Chief Constables um, who have described the organisations which the LCC represents as organised crime groups? Yes, that is the case. Um, and we know that paramilitary gangs exploit and harm people and prey on the most vulnerable in our society. They may wish to portray themselves as defenders of their community, but it couldn't be further from the truth. There is an onus on all of us as political leaders to ensure that they are not legitimised and that we are actively working together to support communities and individuals who are vulnerable to their malign activities. Countering the, the enduring and pervasive nature of paramilitarism and organised crime structures in our society requires a long-term and genuinely collaborative approach across government, working closely with those in local communities. This is an approach that is at the heart of the cross-executive programme, which has seen government departments, statutory agencies and voluntary community groups working together to address the harm caused by paramilitarism and build safer communities resilient to the effects of paramilitary activity. Moving on, I call Paula Bradley. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Minister, can I just ask you um, if you have any plans or what your department might be doing um, in, to try and prevent the likes of scams, especially amongst our most vulnerable within our community, the, the elderly, for example? Um, as I said in answer to an earlier question, um, Mr. Deputy Speaker, the department is part of the ScamWise Partnership NI, where we work uh, with people right across the broad spectrum. Um, of both communications, so for example, Royal Mail, Post Office, um, with Ofcom, um, with the PSNI, and with people from the age sector um, and others um, who come together in order to try to advise um, and pro provide information for those who may be vulnerable to scams as to how those scams might appear to them, um, how they should respond to them, um, and who they should report them to. It is hugely important at this time that people are aware of the risk of scams and how sophisticated some of those scams are. I mean, they are truly um, incredibly um, sophisticated. You get them by your email, you get them by your phone, um, and to all intents and purposes, they look like standard emails and texts from any normal business. Very convincing, very dangerous, and people lose sometimes all of their, their, their money um, believing that they have been contacted by a bank only to find out they've given their password and details um, to someone who has emptied their account. I would appeal to people, if you get a text message unsolicited or an email message unsolicited from any statutory agency or from any government body, do not respond with any details. Do not reply. Contact the agency directly yourself on their registered number um, and don't go back through that email because undoubtedly in most of those cases it will be a scam. I call Paula Bradley for supplementary. Thank you, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I thank the Minister for her answer thus far. Um, Minister, just again, is there any campaigns or anything that we can run here specific to Northern Ireland, especially for elderly? I have a mother who gets calls constantly from Amazon or Netflix to say that her account has been compromised. She doesn't have an Amazon account or a Netflix, but phones me in absolute panic um, uh, after receiving these calls, plus many others. So it's just, is there a any sort of campaign that we can be part of a national campaign or one specific to Northern Ireland that you, you maybe plan? Well, the 
Wise Partnership has ongoing um, campaigns and ongoing materials that are available. I spoke earlier about the, the little books um, of different types of scams which give people background information and those are accessible both online and in hard copy for people who perhaps um, aren't as technically efficient um, in terms of being able um, to download them themselves. So there is a lot of material out there and I know the Scamwise Partnership themselves have run a number um, of public um, awareness campaigns. Um, I I haven't got an update on the, the next campaign that's due to come forward, uh, but happy to provide that in writing to the member afterwards. Daniel McCrossan is not in his place. I call John Blair. Deputy Speaker, thank you. And I, I think some, some of these matters were touched on earlier, though they, they're worth, in, in my opinion, revisiting because of the, the importance of the matters. Can I ask Deputy Speaker the Minister for an update on legislation and progress of legislation in relation to victims of trafficking and exploitation? Well, the member is, of course, right that these issues have been touched on already. Perhaps if I provide an overview of the legislative programme and where it sits. The Domestic Abuse and Civil Proceedings Act passed into law in January, um, and thanks to the work of the Justice Committee and my own department, we now have um, much more robust laws around coercive control, in particular, and domestic abuse. The committee are currently dealing with three pieces of legislation, committal reform, which will do two things, speed up justice and prevent victims from having to give evidence twice in court. Um, and that is something that I think is very important and that we're very keen um, to move forward with. They're also dealing with the personal injury discount rate um, bill, which is going through the committee at the moment, which will, um, which will essentially work out how in future we will calculate um, personal injury um, claims to ensure that the person receives 100% compensation. And further, they have the stalking bill, which they're looking at at the moment as well, um, which is in front of the committee. And then finally, there is the justice bill, uh, which is still, as I explained earlier, sitting in executive now running to seven weeks. The reality, Mr Deputy Speaker, is that the fragility of these institutions could scupper all of those pieces of legislation, those last four pieces, because if they're not passed and receive royal assent um, prior to this place keeling over, all of the work done by the committee all of the work done by the department, all of the expectations of the public around these serious public protection issues will be dashed. I would ask members to reflect on that as they make decisions over the coming days. I call John Blair for a supplementary. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. And I thank the Minister for the answer. And could I ask, quite separate to, to the legislative uh, process, is it the case also, can the Minister confirm that there be potentially major negative impact for victims of crime if this legislation is not to proceed with, with some haste? Absolutely. Um, members of the committee here in the chamber at the moment will be aware that one of the major issues in the Justice Bill um, is that we will be providing special measures um, for those um, who are complainants in serious sexual offence cases. Um, we will also um, be legislating to permit um, protections for defendants in those same cases um, and for many of the recommendations of Sir John Gillan's review to ensure um, that people who are subject to serious sexual offences are not re-traumatised on their way through the system. The committal reform bill similarly um, follows up on recommendations from a number um, of organisations that say committal reform needs to take place, both in terms of the speed of justice and also in terms of the risk of victims and witnesses becoming subject to intimidation um, when they actually go forward um, to make complaints um, and to follow cases. And we know the attrition rates um, in serious sexual offences are significant. It also deals with uh, child sexual um, exploitation, and so it will leave a very vulnerable group um, of young people even more vulnerable. And as I spoke to earlier, 
Um, it will also prevent um, us being able to move forward um, on abuse of trust legislation in those areas outside statutory provision. But it isn't, of course, only legislation. Members are well aware, and I'm on the record in this House, of saying that I want to develop a Victims of Crime Commissioner. I want that person to be in post-designate by the end of this year. There is a lot of work to do for that to be possible. It will require the cooperation again of the Assembly Committee um, and it will require us then to also develop a legislative footing on which to place that Commissioner, which will hopefully pass in the next mandate. All of that work can be jeopardised unless we actually get down to doing the business we were elected to do. I call Steve Aiken. Can I thank the Minister for her comments so far? And I could also ask her for, thank her for agreeing to meet with me and other members of the all-party group and ethnic minorities tomorrow. And in advance of that meeting, could she outline the actions she's taking to advance hate crimes legislation? With respect to hate crimes legislation, there are a number um, of actions that we're taking um, in terms of bringing this forward. The member will be aware that we had the Marinan Review. Uh, we have gone forward with that in the department, and I'm now awaiting the final report. Um, and once we get that final report, I will then set out my intentions in terms of how we're going to take that forward. I'm aware, as he is, that there is a huge appetite for us to see improved laws on the issue of hate crime. It would be my intention um, that in the summer, when the legislative programme should open up um, slightly in terms of um, access to both drafting experience in the Department and the Office of Legislative Council, that we would commence drafting um, of a hate crimes bill, which would come forward at the start of the next mandate. I call Steve Egan. And May I thank the Minister for her answer so far. Uh, obviously, one of the things we're seeing at the moment is the delay in the Justice Bill going through at the moment, and she would be fully aware of the current concerns, particularly amongst the new Northern Ireland, uh, as I call them, the new Northern Irish people, who see very clearly that the concerns about hate crime legislation seems to have been put back yet again. Is there any way that the Minister could see whether hate crimes legislation, which much of it is taken directly from other parts of the United Kingdom, could be put directly into the Justice Bill, even at this late stage, to enable this vital thing to be done? Well, given that the one of the rather weak excuses for not passing the Justice Bill through the Executive has been the fear that people would add to it, I'm not sure that would be a helpful solution. Um, whilst I understand that the member would wish to make haste on this issue. It is also not as simple as lifting legislation from elsewhere because it has to interact with our own local human rights um, and equality legislation. It is also complex in that a number um, of the issues that have been recommended by Judge Marin and go well ahead of current policy. Um, and so there would be a piece of policy development work and indeed public consultation required. For example, um, on the issue of misogyny, which is one of the areas that has been widely debated, should that be gender as a category of hate crime or specifically misogyny uh, with trans issues as a separate se se kind of hate crime? Those are all issues which are not settled in the Marinan Review and they're issues on which we would have to seek public views um, as we develop policy. So there are elements of it that I think potentially are reasonably straightforward, but I would want to wait until I've seen the final report um, from my own officials in that respect to judge best how that can be taken forward. Personally, Mr Speaker, I think that in terms of giving um, leadership on this issue and in terms of ensuring coherence to policy, it is much preferable to bring forward legislation in a hate crimes bill, uh, which actually covers all of those elements in one place. I think that's a much better way to do it in terms of ensuring that nothing falls through the cracks. I call Sinead Bradley. Speaker. Minister, um, you recently published a consultation analysis report for the establishment of a regional care and justice campus. 
Can you provide a, an updated timeline on the delivery of such a campus? The work is ongoing between ourselves and health, um, and we are making good progress. Um, there are a number of issues that have been raised and will be raised in the consultation, which we will want, obviously, to look at very carefully. Um, but working along with Minister Swan, I believe that we can make good progress in this regard. There are obviously um, genuine concerns around um, how this will be led and from which department, how the different departments will interact, but I think all of those are entirely resolvable um, in terms of working with the Department of Health. I think the most important thing is that we try to provide a therapeutic environment for young people, particularly those youngest and most vulnerable people um, who are guilty of offending but nevertheless um, are also the subject to adverse childhood incidents. Many of the young people that come into the justice system, did, if they did not come through the justice system, would come to the uh, society's attention through the care system. And so we need to have a standardised approach in terms of how we deal with adverse childhood incidents and the vulnerabilities of young people rather than taking a criminally-led um, approach. I call Sinead Bradley for supplementary. Thank you, and thank you, Minister, for your response. And you rightly noted some of the concerns raised. One of those concerns was the risk associated with the approach for an integrated admissions process. And you do talk to that and talk about um, that you will set up a, a risk-associated um, scheme. But I want to know who will be responsible for developing that model, who actually will be sitting down around a table to mitigate against those risks? Health and justice officials. And that is the end of our period of time of questions to the Minister for Justice. I would ask members to take their ease for a few moments before we progress to the next batch of questions. <laughs>